Welcome to the Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. This episode is done in conjunction with the Palm Beach County Medical Society. The speaker is Dr. Neil Buckholz, who is the director of the Division of Neuroscience at the National Institute of Aging, which is part of the National Institutes of Health in Bethesda. I'm Abby Straussen. Thanks for listening. So what I'd like to do this evening is to really give you an overview of research that's going on uh, at the National Institute on Aging and kind of provide you a focus for new kinds of ways of looking at what's going on in the brain of someone with Alzheimer's disease and how what we've learned over the past 10 to 15 years has really changed the way that we're starting to do clinical trials in Alzheimer's disease. So just so we're speaking the same language, uh, dementia is a general term Persistent decline in intellectual functioning interferes with usual social and occupational functioning and includes impairment in a number of cognitive and personality modalities. So this is a general term, and Alzheimer's disease is the most prevalent kind of dementia in older individuals. So it's the most common cause of dementia in people age 65 and over, and again, you may be familiar with some of these. It's a progressive neurodegenerative disorder. The hallmark of Alzheimer's disease is a memory impairment plus additional cognitive disturbances and a gradual decline in cognition, behavioral and personality, and activities of daily living. According to the Alzheimer's Association, in 2012, there were about 5.4 million people in the United States with Alzheimer's disease. It's the sixth leading cause of death, and I'll show you some uh, more specific figures, but costs currently cost over $200 billion per year in the United States. Now, I'm not going to talk about the non-Alzheimer's dementias, so said Alzheimer's is about 70% of dementias of older people. There are various types of frontotemporal lobar degeneration, Lewy body dementia, mixed dementia, which you have Alzheimer's disease plus other kinds of pathologies, and vascular dementia. But I'm going to be focusing primarily on Alzheimer's because that is the most prevalent one of the dementias of older people. So... Again, this is a very common chronic disease, typically arising by minute changes over time, so you don't wake up one day with Alzheimer's disease. It occurs over a period of time. And as I'll show you, what we've learned, a very critical thing that we've learned over the past 10 or 15 years is that the changes in the brain that lead to the cognitive decline start 10, 15, even 20 years before the symptoms develop. And this has been very important for us in understanding disease progression as well as in developing new kinds of clinical trials. An important conceptual idea, again, over the past 10 or 15 years has been of a cognitive continuum. So if we start with normal, normal cognition in older people, this transitions into what's called mild cognitive impairments. And I'll show you in a minute uh, what I mean by mild cognitive impairment. So it's mainly a memory deficit, but other cognitive domains are generally normal. And then that progresses into Alzheimer's disease. So again, 
What we're really trying to do is figure out the very earliest changes that occur in the brains of people who eventually develop Alzheimer's disease. So these are the criteria that were developed by Ron Peterson at the Mayo Clinic, who really popularized the idea of mild cognitive impairment. So there's a memory complaint, but on formal neuropsychological and clinical testing, memory is impaired for age. Other cognitive domains are generally intact, although there may be some changes. Activities of daily living, again, are basically intact. There may be some small changes. And the person is not demented. So it's a memory deficit. Other domains are basically intact. And the important thing is that many studies have shown that people with mild cognitive impairment are at a very high risk of progressing to Alzheimer's disease. So if you look at people with mild cognitive impairment going to Alzheimer's disease, it's about 12% per year in a number of studies, whereas cognitively normal individuals transitioning to Alzheimer's at a much lower rate, 1% to 2% per year. The initial diagnostic criteria for Alzheimer's disease were developed in 1984, the so-called McCann criteria or the NINCDS-ADRDA criteria. In 2010, the Alzheimer's Association, in conjunction with the National Institute on Aging, brought together a number of groups based upon the new knowledge that had been generated since 1984 and developed three new diagnostic criteria. The first one is the diagnosis of dementia due to Alzheimer's disease, basically the same as the original criteria. Now that we knew about mild cognitive impairment, the diagnosis of mild cognitive impairment due to Alzheimer's disease. And the third is defining the preclinical stages of Alzheimer's disease. So based upon this idea that there is this period of time where there are changes in the brain, but no symptoms of the disease, which we can call preclinical or presymptomatic, these are research diagnostic criteria to look at how we can evaluate this presymptomatic or preclinical stage of the disease. But let's first talk about some demographic and epidemiological results. So we still know that age is the primary risk factor for Alzheimer's disease. And look at what happened, look at what has happened since 1900 with respect to life expectancy in the United States. It's almost doubled. There are many, many more people in this older age group than there were previously. Secondly, a very important consideration is that the number of older people, 65 to 74, will double between now and 2060. But those individuals over 85 will quadruple. This is a huge demographic shift, not only in the, in the United States, but in other countries as well. And if you look at this group of the over 85, you can see very dramatically what's going to happen. And you can also see that there are more women than men in this group. And we know that women live longer than men. And so there will be many more, many more women in this over 85 age group than men. And then if you take all of this into consideration and look at the projections from 2010, which I said there were about 5.4 million people, to mid-century, 2050. 
you can see that in the United States alone, the numbers go up from about 5 to around 14 or 15. This is a huge increase in the numbers of people with Alzheimer's disease if nothing else is done. And over on the right side, you can see that those individuals, percent of individuals with AD by age in the 65 to 74 group, around 3 to 5 percent, 75 to 84, around 15 to 20, but over 85, 35 to 40 percent. But this is really a global phenomenon. If you look at what's happening worldwide in 2010, this is dementia, not Alzheimer's disease, but again, you can figure that 70% of these people have Alzheimer's disease. 35 million people around the world with dementia. And interestingly, what's going to happen by 2050, these are the high-income countries. The high-income countries are going to increase, but the huge increase in the low- and middle-income countries is really extraordinary. And if you think about and you know very well the stresses on the healthcare system in the United States. Now, you can only imagine what's going to happen over this period of time if we don't develop new ways of treating and preventing this disease. And then again, the cost. This was a, a RAND Corporation study that was done looking at the cost of disease from 2010 to 2040. This is purchased care, and these are different ways of measuring the indirect costs, either foregone wages, people who have to leave their jobs to take care of their loved ones, or the replacement costs for those foregone wages. But again, what you see is somewhere around 185 to $220 billion in 2010. By 2040, half a trillion dollars. I mean, again, you know what's happening with healthcare costs in the United States alone. You can only imagine the stresses on the system if nothing else is done. So what are some of the other risk factors other than age that we know about? We know that head injury is a risk factor, and there's a lot of interest in traumatic brain injury and chronic traumatic encephalopathy, both from sports and from veterans coming back from the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, various cardiovascular and cerebrovascular risk factors such as high blood pressure, high cholesterol, high homocysteine, diabetes and obesity, and diet. Importantly, a number of these risk factors are dependent upon age. So for example, high blood pressure is a risk at midlife. So if you have high blood pressure at midlife, it's a risk for developing Alzheimer's disease in later life, but it's not a risk in, by itself in later life. Probably the same sort of thing for obesity, although it's not quite as clear. But for diabetes, this is a risk at any age. These are treatable conditions, very critical to treat these kinds of conditions to potentially decrease the risk of developing Alzheimer's. Family history, it is true that first-degree relatives with Alzheimer's disease have a risk about two and a half times that of, of the background risk. Interestingly, female offspring of individuals with probable AD still higher risk than male offspring. So independent of the fact that women live longer than men, there do seem to be other gender effects which are being studied but are not clear at this point that put women at higher risk than men for developing Alzheimer's disease.
Let's look at the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. When Alwa Alzheimer in 1906 looked through a microscope at the brain of his first patient, Augusta D., what he saw were two of what we consider to be the hallmark of Alzheimer's disease in the brain. This is a neurofibrillary tangle. This is a nerve cell filled with a protein called tau. And this is a senile plaque. So this is where a nerve cell used to be. But around it are these plaques containing beta amyloid. Also in the brain, there's loss of neurons, regionally loss of neurons. So all neurons in the brain don't die. Something I'll show you in a few minutes, which we still don't understand, is why only certain areas of the brain show deficits. Loss of synaptic connections, so nerve cells can no longer talk to each other. Inflammatory changes in the brain and oxidative changes, free radical damage that occurs. This is a protein called the amyloid precursor protein. It's a very long protein. There are two enzymes, beta secretase and gamma secretase, that cut this. This is the beta amyloid protein, which goes out into the extracellular space, aggravates to form these beta amyloid plaques. And then tau, tau is not a, this is not a mutated form of tau. This is a post-translational increase in phosphorylation in the tau protein. So when this happens, when tau becomes abnormally phosphorylated, its normal function is in the axon. This is a neuron. This is an axon coming out of that neuron communicating with another cell. Within these axons are what are called microtubules. And material that's formed in the nerve body goes down the axon and is important for metabolism in this end of the, the neuron and in the synapse. So what happens in Alzheimer's disease is, again, for reasons that we don't fully understand, these microtubules basically fall apart, and so material can't get down the axon and the nerve cell dies. So those are the two major hallmarks of Alzheimer's disease. And up until very recently, the only way that we could see these was by looking at the brain after death. But now, as I'll show you in a few minutes, we can see both of these pathologies in the brains of living human people. So let me talk a bit about the genetic factors that are involved. There are basically two kinds of Alzheimer's disease. There's the early onset autosomal dominant forms of disease in which there are three genes, the amyloid precursor protein, presenilin 1, and presenilin 2. If you inherit a mutated form of one of these three genes from one of your parents, you will get the disease. You may get it at different ages, depending upon which one. So presenilin 1, the age of onset in families can range from as early as the mid to late 20s into the early 60s. The beta amyloid precursor protein mutation 45 to 65, and presenilin 2, 40 to 85. And if any of you have seen the movie Still Alice, this is uh, Alice. So she received one of these mutations from her father and has this early onset dominantly in form of the disease. The other kinds of genes are risk factor genes 
in late onset Alzheimer's disease. So we say late onset Alzheimer's occurs at 60 to 65, but as you saw, we're seeing people at even earlier ages with what we think is late onset Alzheimer's disease. So there are a number of genes. The major risk factor gene for late onset Alzheimer's disease is called apolipoprotein E4. So there are three forms of apolipoprotein, or three alleles, the E2, E3, and E4. If you have an E4 gene, E4 allele, this puts you at increased risk of Alzheimer's disease. But the important thing is, these are risk factor genes. So the idea is, just because you have this gene doesn't necessarily mean that you're going to get the disease. You're at higher risk for the disease, but there may be other factors. There may be other genetic factors, there may be environmental factors, which interacts with this gene so that you actually don't get it. But if you have this gene, you may be at risk increased risk, as well as getting the disease at an earlier age of onset. So it both puts you at increased risk and potentially decreases the age of onset at which you will get the disease. And just to mention, there are now a number of other genes, these kinds of late onset risk factor genes that have been identified in various categories from new kinds of genetic studies. This from a genome-wide association study in various categories. I won't go, more, go into detail, but the importance of this is that it enables us to have a better understanding of some of the pathological factors that may be involved in the development of Alzheimer's disease and gives us new targets for therapeutic development. So I mentioned this before that the pathology precedes the onset. So just to give you a feel for what the brain actually looks like in people with Alzheimer's disease, the next three will be magnetic resonance imaging, which looks at brain structure. So if you can imagine, this is what's called a coronal section. You slice the brain this way. You're looking at it head on. This is the top of the brain. This is the, the bottom of the brain. What you can see in the cortex, the convolutions in the cortex, the gyri and the sulci, you can see the ventricles, which are filled with cerebrospinal fluid. And here is the hippocampus, in the temporal lobe, which is intimately involved in memory. As the disease progresses, nerve cells die. The cortex atrophies. You see all this atrophy in the cortex. You see increases in the size of the ventricles, and you can see atrophy in the hippocampus. And then toward the end, you can see even further atrophy, huge increases in the ventricles, and a very tiny a hippocampus that's left there. So that's the structure of the brain. We can also look at the function of the brain. We can do that by looking at how the brain utilizes energy. The brain utilizes a lot of energy in the form of glucose, sugar. And so using positron emission tomography, we can inject a radioactive chemical called fluorodeoxyglucose. And we can measure where in the brain you can see differences in the utilization of energy. And what you can see is a pattern in the brain of people with Alzheimer's disease where certain areas are decreasing their energy metabolism, their use of glucose. And this is a standard way of looking at 
functional aspects of the brain. So this is looking at the side of the brain. This is the front of the brain. This is the cerebellum. This is the occipital lobe. And what you can see, a standard pattern in the brain, in the temporal lobe, the parietal lobe, the prefrontal cortex, and then if you do what's called a sagittal section, so you cut the brain this way and look at the brain, the midline of the brain, in an area called the posterior cingulate. And I'll come back to this to show you some changes in one of the studies that we've been able to look at, but this is really a signature of the function of the brain in Alzheimer's disease. And then in 2004, there was a real breakthrough. And I almost never use the word breakthrough because for the first time, we can now look at beta amyloid in the living human brain and follow this over time. In 2004, two scientists, Bill Klunk and Chet Mathis, developed a radioactive chemical which when injected intravenously into the body got to the brain, bound to beta amyloid, and you can now visualize the amount of beta amyloid in the brain using a PET scan. Interestingly, in individuals with mild cognitive impairment, there seemed to be two groups. One group, which had a lot of amyloid in their brains, almost the same amount or even more than those with Alzheimer's disease. And for some reason that we still don't understand, the group of mild cognitive impairment individuals with low amounts of beta amyloid. But these individuals, again, are at high risk of progressing to Alzheimer's disease. And then just over the last two years, a new chemical was developed for looking at tau in the brains of people with Alzheimer's disease. So what you can see here, this is a cognitively normal individual, very little tau, a little bit in the area around the hippocampus, beta amyloid, not so much. This is a cognitively normal person with significant amounts of beta amyloid, and you can see much more tau. And then finally, a person with Alzheimer's disease, tremendous amounts of beta amyloid, and a lot of tau. So now we have the ability, using positron emission tomography, to look at the two major pathologies of Alzheimer's disease, beta amyloid and tau, in the living human brain, and follow those people over time. So this is the sort of bad news. Current drug treatments for Alzheimer's disease, as you know, the cholinesterase inhibitors, Tacrin, which was the first one to be developed, which is no longer used, the nepazil, ribosigmine, galantamine, and a glutamate antagonist, memantine. The last FDA approval was in 2003. We've had no new drugs approved by the FDA. All of these major phase three clinical trials looking at a number of different agents, have all been negative. So this has been very discouraging to the field. However, I think there's hope, and I'll show you in a minute why I think that's the case. In 2004, at the National Institute on Aging, we started what's called the Alzheimer's Disease Neuroimaging Initiative. The idea for this is to try to facilitate clinical trials by understanding the progression of Alzheimer's disease in the brain using what I've shown you, the, the, what we call biomarkers, these imaging biomarkers and also fluid biomarkers in cerebrospinal fluid. 
And without going into the details, the idea was to try to develop a longitudinal study, follow people over time, and see, using all of these measures, which we now have available, what was the progression of Alzheimer's disease in the brain from normal cognitive aging through mild cognitive impairment into Alzheimer's disease. I won't go into the details other than to say that there were three groups, MCIAD controls. A number of these measures were looked at longitudinally. Just to give you a feel for this, these were people in their mid-70s, highly educated, and as you can see, in people with cognitive impairment and Alzheimer's disease, a high percent of these individuals have the E4 allele. Again, just to give you a flavor, not going to go into all the details of the studies, but this is the mini-mental state examination, which is a measure of cognition. As cognition gets worse, the mini-mental state numbers go down. And so what you can see, over a two-year period, there was a significant decline in individuals with Alzheimer's disease, also a decline in the people with MCI, not as much. The normal stayed the same. Looking at MRI studies, what you can see in the people with Alzheimer's disease is that there was a thinning of the cortex. So again, nerve cells are dying. The cortex is thinning out in the temporal and parietal and frontal lobes. FDG-PET, fluorodeoxyglucose PET, shows you that in the same areas that I showed you previously, now this is looking at change over a one-year period of time. Even over this one-year period of time, you can see significant decreases in energy utilization in these same areas, both in people with Alzheimer's disease and in MCI. So now we have ways of studying this disease in the brain over time. And one of the most surprising things that was seen in ADNI, as well as other studies, looking at this PET imaging with beta amyloid, is that, as you would expect, in people with Alzheimer's disease, there was a lot of beta amyloid in the brain. In people with mild cognitive impairment, you saw this group that had high amounts of beta amyloid and another group that showed low amounts. But the most surprising thing was that in people who were cognitively normal, by all the kinds of measures that we use, in this study, this was fairly high, 47% of those people had amyloid in their brains on the PET scan. So here is a group of people, cognitively normal, walking around with a lot of amyloid in their brains. What does this mean? We think it means that these people are at high risk of developing Alzheimer's disease. And we are studying these people, and we're now studying these people in a clinical trial that has very recently started that I'll mention in a minute. This is cerebrospinal fluid, so you can measure tau, A-beta, and phosphotau in cerebrospinal fluid, and you can use this as another biomarker measure of disease. So what happens is that tau goes up as you go from normal controls to MCI to AD, and beta amyloid goes down because we think the beta amyloid is being trapped in the plaques, and so the amount in the cerebrospinal fluid goes down. Just to say that there have been a lot of new kinds of genetic studies that are going on. You may have heard about whole genome sequencing, in which we can now sequence the whole genome. And so in the ADNI study, over 800 people have now gotten whole genome sequencing. And the other thing I wanted to mention is that all the data in ADNI are publicly available to anybody basically anywhere around the world. 
in 2010, we funded ADNI 2, which is looking at MCI, earlier MCI. So these are people with MCI, but don't have quite as much cognitive decline as the people with late MCI. Again, the major change here is that we went to a different amyloid imaging agent. So Pittsburgh compound B is a C11 compound. It has a very short half-life. You need a cyclotron. And the F18, the fluorine 18 amyloid imaging agents, there are now three of them. We're using one called Florbeta here. has a longer half-life so they can be distributed to sites around the country. I wanted to show you, so this is now looking at what I showed you before. This is amyloid imaging in normals. These are people with subjective memory complaints, early MCI, late MCI, and AD. Here it shows 27% of people with who are cognitively normal have amyloid in their brains, but if you look at it in terms of the E4 allele, you see a major change. So in normal individuals with an ApoE4 allele, Almost 50% of these people have amyloid in their brains. They are at very high risk of progressing to mild cognitive impairments in Alzheimer's disease. So this is just a diagram of what we think is happening. And I think this is important because I'm going to end with the new clinical trials. So what this shows is what we've learned over the past 15 or 20 years about these biomarkers of disease. So the current thinking is that beta amyloid is the first thing that changes. And this changes maybe 15 or 20 years before the symptom. So this changes very early. It has its effect. And by the time people have the symptoms of Alzheimer's disease, the major effect of beta amyloid is over. That's followed by tau, followed by changes in MRI and FDG PET, and then finally, followed by cognitive impairment. I mentioned before that all of these large clinical trials that have been done have been done to people with Alzheimer's disease, mild Alzheimer's disease. The hypothesis is that if we can start these trials at this earlier stage of disease before the major effects of beta amyloid have been shown to stop this, then we may be able to stop disease progression as well as delay the onset of the disease. So in clinical trials, not to say that it's not critical to keep looking for drugs that help people with Alzheimer's disease, but if we ever want to really get a handle on this and the numbers that I showed you before, we really have to look at better ways of delaying onset or delaying disease progression. So there's been a shift from looking at individuals with advanced Alzheimer's disease to looking at individuals in this pre-symptomatic or pre-clinical stage of disease. And we now have four trials that are looking at these kinds of individuals. The first one is a trial that's being done in Columbia, South America. They have a very large cohort of individuals who have this pre in one mutation, and they're looking at one of the monoclonal antibodies against beta amyloid cronuzumab. So these are people who have the mutation but do not yet have symptoms to see if we can delay the onset. There's another study going on looking at mutation carriers called the Dominantly Inherited Alzheimer's Network Trial or the DIANE trial that's looking at two other monoclonal antibodies, again, in these three mutation carrier groups. There's a study that just recently started the A4 trial 
anti-amyloid treatment and asymptomatic AD. This is looking at these individuals who are cognitively normal, but on PET scanning have amyloid in their brains. Looking at another monoclonal antibody, and then finally, toward the end of this year, a trial is going to be started in APOE4 homozygotes. These are different now. This is an active immunization against A-beta and a beta-secretase inhibitor. So where are we? Over the past 15 or 20 years, as I've shown you, we now have ways, the living human brain, of looking at how these various pathologies change over time. So we have a much better idea of disease progression in the brain. We're now putting these biomarkers into clinical trials to see if these interventions will affect both the biomarker as well as the clinical symptoms to develop what we hope will be ways of utilizing these biomarkers to make clinical trials more efficient and shorter so that we'll be able to look at more potential interventions. And we now are going to this very early stage of the disease with the hope, and it's just a hope at this point, that we will be able to develop interventions that will delay the onset or delay the progression of the disease. So I came to the National Institute on Aging in 1990. We were very hopeful that we would have new therapies within the next five years. This has not happened. This has been the most discouraging part of my term at NIA. But on the other hand, we know a lot more about the disease process. We've developed these biomarkers to be able to look at what's going on in living individuals. And we now have better ways, I think, at least for testing therapies in this pre-symptomatic or preclinical stage of the disease. So I must say that I'm still very optimistic. Uh, there are lots of very smart people who are working on this problem. There are still many mysteries about the disease. But I do think that we will be able to develop new therapies for the individuals who have Alzheimer's disease, who will develop Alzheimer's disease, and their families, because this is really what all of us are focused on. So I thank you for your attention. So, sure. Question. At this point, we don't necessarily see a way of using stem cells for therapy. The problem is that the disease is so distributed that it would be hard to know what to do. What what is happening now is that there are things called induced pluripotent stem cells. And those are actually being developed for use to develop, develop new therapies, for being able to test therapies, uh, f- because we get them from people who have the disease. And so they are models, they're human models of the disease, and we're trying to use them uh, to screen uh, various potential therapies. So in that sense, yes. All right, so here's the problem. So here's the problem. So let's take fluorbetapyr or the two other amyloid imaging agents. They have been approved by the Food and Drug Administration 
basically to rule out Alzheimer's disease when there's diagnostic uncertainty. So if the physician is not quite sure if this is Alzheimer's disease or another dementia or something else, somebody can get a PET scan, an amyloid PET scan. If you don't have amyloid in your brain, by definition, you don't have Alzheimer's disease. However, it is not covered by insurance. CMS does not cover this. So that's the dilemma. There are people who are trying to change this. But as of right now, I mean, if someone wanted to pay three to $5,000 and the physician thought that this was important, the person could get a PET scan, but very few people can afford that. I think for fiscal 2015, we're at about $550 or $600 million NIH-wide for Alzheimer's disease. We have been, I have to say, we have been very fortunate. Last fiscal year, we got an additional $100 million appropriation from Congress for Alzheimer's disease. This year, we got an additional $25 million, but clearly not sufficient to be able to fund all the very high-quality research that we have. There was a change in the law this fiscal year. Uh, now we are something called the Alzheimer's Accountability Act. We are now required to develop a budget that goes directly to Congress called a bypass budget, um, indicating what we think are the needs for funding Alzheimer's disease research. There is, of course, no guarantee that we will get any of that money, but at least it's, it's something new that we've never had before, and we'll see what happens. Clearly, the, the important thing to do is, is you uh, and your patients at the grassroots level need to talk to your congresspeople. I mean, sometimes it's frankly appalling that both representatives and senators don't understand that the funding for research in their communities, the communities that they serve, comes from the NIH. I don't know where they think it comes from, but they don't understand that, that that's what's really critical for the medical and scientific institutions um, in their jurisdiction. So I think the more that you can do that to educate uh, Congress people, the better it's going to be. There's been so much research of so many fears, and it seems so often associated with tau and beta amyloids, and nothing's really come out of it. Is there any thinking, parallel thinking, that maybe these systems are associated with Alzheimer's but not positive? Well, there is, and there are other things I didn't show. I have a slide with a lot of other things that are going on, but I think that these kinds of trials that I just showed you, these pre-symptomatic trials, will actually be a test of what we call the amyloid hypothesis. I think if these don't work, then you really have to question the whole basis for the amyloid hypothesis. But we're also looking at other things. So inflammation, for example, um, seems to be very important. Well, we know it's important in the brain. We don't know if, it, if it's something that comes in initially or if it's a result of something else. But we're looking at other kinds of therapeutic interventions as well. So not just beta amyloid in town. Are there any prospective studies being done on prevention of amyloid? The absolute prevention? I guess it would depend where. So, again, we're going, 
as early as we can. So presumably in order to do that, you'd have to start a trial maybe in the 40s or 50s. I mean, if you absolutely wanted to try to prevent it. There are trial, ongoing trials for all of those kinds of things currently to look at whether that affects uh, cognition and beta amyloid. But there's no specific trial just looking at, at that. So the question is the role of the cerebrospinal fluid. In terms of production versus clearance, so it's thought that in the early onset dominantly inherited form of the disease, there is increased production. That's the major thing. In the late onset Alzheimer's disease, we believe that it's clear. So there's the clearance of amyloid getting out of the brain is not as great. So, but there are no interventions yet that could, that we know of that will increase the clearance of beta amyloid out of the brain. So there are a number of studies going on in terms of two kinds of things behavioral management using various kinds of cognitive strategies, for example, or other kinds of behavioral interventions, but also in terms of non-pharmacological interventions, things like exercise. So we actually have a number of trials looking at exercise, particularly in people with mild cognitive impairment, to see if that will modify the course of the disease, because from the epidemiological studies, one of the most important protective factors is physical exercise. That's come out of almost every epidemiological study. We're doing a number of studies in that area as well. What's happening in other countries in terms of the disease prevalence and also research? In terms of other countries, the disease prevalence is about the same. In terms of research, they're actually doing better than we are, frankly, in terms of putting more resources into Alzheimer's disease research. The French, when Sarkozy was the prime minister, really developed a major focus on Alzheimer's disease. David Cameron in the UK has a major commitment to Alzheimer's disease research. The Canadians have been putting a lot of money in. So this is a worldwide problem. There's not a great relationship between amyloid imaging and cognitive decline. There is an extremely good correlation between tangles or tau. We're just starting to look at tau imaging and cognitive decline. It's thought that the proximal thing that leads to nerve cell death is tau, tangles. Tau increases a little bit in normal cognitive aging. So there is some increase in tau in the area around the hippocampus normally. doesn't seem to be doing anything. When beta amyloid comes along, for reasons that we don't fully understand, the amount of tau increases precipitously. It gets out of this specific area of the hippocampus and gets into the inferior temporal lobe. And that seems to be the trigger for both nerve cell death and cognitive decline. So that's why I say it's, it's really great that we have both ways of looking at both beta amyloid and tau in the living human brain because we can now look at this to see if this actually is the case. And I don't know if you noticed, but on the, the slide that I had on tau imaging, that's kind of what it showed. 
So the proximal thing seems to be tangles or tau in terms of the cognitive decline. Thank you. Thank you.